1 John chapter 2, verses 18 and 19. And I've entitled this morning's sermon, They Are Not of Us. And for our worshipers and training our children, your key words this morning are Antichrist or Christ's believers, true and false. You have four. Make sure you're seeking to keep up with those. So let's read together 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 and 19. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard, that Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Last week we looked at 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. And John instructed us that Christians are not to love the world or the things of the world. And Pastor Steve made clear that John is not saying that the world itself is evil, but that it is a place temporarily controlled by the power of evil. We know from Scripture that God loves the world and He sent His Son to die to redeem the world, as we see in chapter 2, verse 2 of 1 John. But Christians must be careful not to be enticed by the things of the world that will work to draw us away from Christ. And we saw that in verse 16. And from that passage, John makes very clear that if you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. If you love the world, you, by implication, do not love Jesus. You do not hope in God. You do not possess eternal life and will pass away with the world and the evil desires of the world. And so now, on the heels of that, John is affectionately yet directly warning us. In verse 18, in the last, it is the last hour, and as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. And we see that some individuals have proven by their actions to love the world. In verse 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. And so I want to look at these two verses in three sections this morning. The first will be, Antichrist has come. Second is, he who goes out was never in. And third, true believers will remain forever. So let's begin with Antichrist has come. Now you may be surprised to know that this word Antichrist only appears in John's letters. 
In fact, only in two of what two of the five books that John has written in first and second John. Never once is that word Antichrist used in the book of Revelation, where most would assume that it would probably be very prominent. Perhaps even more surprising is that John's teaching on the Antichrist does not appear to have any resemblance whatsoever to the understanding that has become popular through end times theorists or the biblically inept left-behind fiction series of novels. But the word itself, Antichrist, refers to anything or anyone that is false. Hence the prefix, anti. And it opposes that's what is true. Namely, Jesus and His Word. So with that in mind, I want to go back and walk through verse 18. And we'll come back to this word Antichrist in a minute with an understanding that what John means very specifically is that Antichrist is a reference to an opposition of Christ and the truth of the Word of God. So let's read verse 18 again. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard, that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. He begins this, as he has many times already in the book, by calling his readers children. So we know that John is affectionately addressing the church, true believers in Christ. He loves them and he affectionately cares for them. And he says something very interesting. He says, it is the last hour. And at the end of that verse, he says, because the spirit of Antichrist is present, we know that it is the last hour. We have proof that it is the last hour. Other places in Scripture refer to this as last days or end of the ages or the close of the age. There's many times we see that through Scripture. I want to go through a few because looking at those in other passages will give us a better understanding of the urgency of what John is writing here. Matthew 24, verse 5 and verse 24. Jesus was answering the disciples' question, which was, what will be the sign of your coming at the close of the age? And Jesus responded, Many will come in My name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Acts chapter 2, verses 17 through 21. Peter is giving a sermon at Pentecost addressing what had just happened as the Holy Spirit fell upon the believers in fulfillment of the prophecy from Joel chapter 2. Peter said, And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out My Spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, 
Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11. Paul is giving a warning against idolatry. And he uses the example of early Jewish believers, Old Testament believers. And he writes, Now these things... And he had just given examples of their idolatry and their resulting fall because of it. These things happened to them as an example. But they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1-4, through 4, Paul writes to the young Timothy, But understand this, that in the last days, There will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 24 through 26. The writer of Hebrews is explaining the finality of Christ's death on the cross and why we no longer need to fulfill the ceremonial law of the Old Testament and how it is that Jesus is the true high priest. He writes, For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer Himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not His own. For then, He, Jesus, would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. James chapter 5, verse 3. James is condemning the wicked, rich employers who were heaping up more than they needed or that they could even use for themselves. And they were fraudulently holding back the pay of their workers. And James wrote to them, Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasures 
in the last days. And in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3, Peter writes, Scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. And so from all these passages, I think we can conclude at least three things from them. I want you to notice that most of those references were in the present tense. First, we see that in the last days, Jesus has come. He has been revealed. Second, as we saw in Acts, the Holy Spirit is being poured out in new measure. First at Pentecost, and now, as Hebrews chapter 1 tells us, through the Word of God, which we receive all truth, all instruction, and all understanding of who God is and what He requires of His people. And third, we see from our passage this morning, as well as from Timothy and Peter, the spirit of Antichrist will be increasingly active. And by that, there will be difficulties for believers. There will be scoffing of believers. There will be a presence of false teachers and false prophets. And there will be much self-indulgence. So when we take all these things together and we consider where we are today, we see that the Bible is abundantly clear that we are now living in the last days. The last hour, as John has stated it, has arrived. We are living in the last days because the last days began with the first coming of Christ and will reach their climax in the second coming of Christ. In Mark chapter 4, verse 11, he talks about the mystery of the kingdom. And that is that the end of this age came and the kingdom of God arrived. But to everyone's surprise, the age didn't completely end. The kingdom didn't completely come. And as a result, we now live between the beginning of the end of the age and the end of the end of the age. Another way of saying it is that we have already seen the beginning of the kingdom of God in the first coming of Christ. But we have not yet seen the full consummation of the kingdom of God. So we live in the last hour. We live in what has already come, but it is what has not yet come in fullness. So now John is saying at the end of verse 18, we know, we know that this is the last hour. Because, he gives a reason, as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming and already many Antichrists have come. So what is John talking about when he says already many Antichrists have come? I want to be clear here. John's focus is not on 
the man of lawlessness or the son of destruction that Paul discusses in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. That's another sermon altogether. But rather, John is focused on the spirit of Antichrist. The presence of Antichrist. He talks about this later in the book in chapter 4, verse 3. He says, this spirit has already come. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and now is in the world already. So by John's own description, if many antichrists were already present at the end of the first century, then these antichrists cannot be a strict reference to the antichrist at the end of time, as we see in film and fiction novels. For John, antichrist is a very real and very present reality. This is absolute proof to the Apostle John, that the last hour has already arrived. So to be very clear, and perhaps overstate this, Antichrist, in the way that John is using it, is not a specific individual, but rather a specific class of false teachers who deny that Jesus has come in the flesh as he makes very clear in verse 22 of chapter 2, just a, a few more verses down, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. And he repeats the same reasoning in the letter of Second John, verse 7, for many deceivers have gone out into the world those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the Antichrist. In these two verses that we're looking at, in verses 18 and 19, John is mainly addressing two evils that come because of the spirit of Antichrist from within the church. And those two evils are heresy and apostasy. Heresy, false teachings, teachings that go against what the Scriptures explicitly teach and deny the foundational truths of the Gospel. And apostasy, those who have stood to claim belief, yet have turned and walked away. And I say that he's addressing these things within the church, because these are things that are happening amongst individuals who were once considered to be a part of the church, as opposed to evil that may come from outside the church, like persecution of Christians, for example. And so, John is addressing something that is very pertinent to the early believers, to his readers, and most certainly to us today. And the heresy that John specifically is so adamantly fighting against is the teaching that Jesus is not God in the flesh. He's addressing the heresy of Gnosticism. 
the complete and total denial of the Incarnation, which is the coming of the Son of God to be fully God and fully man, living in perfect obedience to the Father, in complete sinlessness, in complete perfection. The Gnostics taught a form of docetism, which was the belief that all material creation, including the body, was inherently evil, and that soul or spirit was inherently good. And so they taught that salvation was obtained through a secret spiritual knowledge, or Gnosis, hence the name Gnostic. And since matter, material things were evil, God, therefore, could not really incarnate or come to live in a human body. And so they taught that Jesus' body was not a real body, but rather a sort of spirit phantom. He only appeared in human form and only appeared to suffer on the cross. It was all an illusion. And this naturally would lead to a denial of the resurrection of the body. A denial of the resurrection of Christ. And so John was looking at this and no doubt was seeing many professing Christians follow this false teaching. And he wrote against it in very clear terms. Chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. He says, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and now is in the world already. So to deny that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh and has lived as a man and simultaneously has lived as God and was tempted, yet was sinless and suffered and died on the cross in a real human body and rose again bodily, was to refuse to recognize that Jesus was God incarnate. And this, John writes, is the spirit of Antichrist. These false teachings and these Antichrists are warned about all throughout Scripture. Jesus Himself said, false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Jude wrote in verses 3 and 4, I found it necessary to write, to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. The entire second chapter of Second Peter is a warning against false teachers and prophets who are, in John's words, antichrists. And so on and so on. 
Many examples. These are just a few throughout all of Scripture. B.B. Warfield wrote, So long as a divine Christ is confessed in the midst of a gainsaying world, so long there will be, as in John's day, many antichrists. And as we live in the last hour, as we live in the last days, be assured, brethren, there are many antichrists. The second thing I want us to see from the Scriptures this morning is that he who goes out was never in. Look at verse 19 again. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. So John is setting up a sort of if-then logic problem here for us. If they went out from us, then they did not really belong to us. If they had belonged to us, then they would still remain with us. We could read it, for if they were from us, but they weren't, they would have remained with us, but they didn't. So John was looking at these antichrists who have left the church. And no doubt, he was probably being asked a lot of questions about this. John, I thought you told us that if we were believers, that we would never leave. That we would never walk away from Jesus. And so John responds, That is true. It is true. But they went out from us. And we see that since they went out from us, they were never of us in the first place. And so John is drawing together a very strong us versus them contrast here to recognize that while these false teachers and false believers shared in the external life of the church, they were never part of the internal existence because they had never been born from above. They were not born again. They were not true believers. They were not Christians. And you know, for a long time now, as a Christian, and more prominently as a pastor, this has been one of my greatest fears for many who have called themselves Christians. They've grown up in the church. They've joined a church. They've been baptized in a church. They've probably faithfully attended everything that the church has to offer for years and years and years. But their lives are completely and fully consumed by worldliness. Externally, they show a very cleaned up, socially acceptable morality that looks good but internally filled with pride and greed 
and hate. They don't love their neighbors. They hate their enemies. They avoid talking to those that they may disagree with or mad at. And instead, they talk about people at every opportunity. They seek to cast judgment on others. Yet they fail to recognize that they have a fully loaded log truck tucked neatly behind the retina. There are many in the church, perhaps sitting right here in this room today, there are many who are hoping in church membership and church activities and service projects to get them from this life to the next. And if a false prophet came tomorrow preaching a false gospel, they would be on that bandwagon in a heartbeat because they were never born of God. And this is why churches fail. This is why the world sits back and laughs at the church. Because we proclaim the high standard of a countercultural gospel living from the Bible. Yet we are too apathetic to hold others accountable. We're too comfortable with our sin to do anything about it. And we're too wrapped up in this world to start living like our treasure is in heaven. Our treasure is in Jesus. And this is why Paul could write to Timothy that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. Listen to this again. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, and having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Oh, how true it is. We love ourselves. We love our money. We're proud and arrogant and abusive in our heart of hearts. Children are disobedient to their parents. Parents are disobedient to the Lord. We often expect to have everything given to us and are ungrateful when it is. For many, holiness is not even a word in our vocabulary. There's a spirit of heartlessness. We're quick to move to slander others and show a complete lack of self-control. We brutalize one another. We know what is good but fail to do it. And above all else, we seek every form of pleasure that we can find before we ever think to seek the righteousness of God. 
And many within the church put on a great show. We have a great appearance of godliness. But in every way and at every hour, we deny its power because it is not active and at work in our lives from one minute to the next. Brothers and sisters, examine yourselves. Because I am certain that many who John had called Antichrist did not walk away from the church thinking that they weren't true believers in the first place. They never thought probably that they would fall into the hellish flames of heresy and apostasy because they were going through the motions. Are you simply going through the motions? Or is Jesus your treasure above all else? Do you love Jesus more than your boat and your house and your job and even your kids and your spouse and your own life? Test yourself. How are you doing? When is the last time you prayed with absolute conviction and honesty? Lord, not my will be done, but Your will be done. Or, Father, help me to believe. Or, Lord, humble me and destroy my pride. Make me pure. Give me a great desire and passion for holiness that makes Jesus look as great and glorious as He is. Are these our prayers? Now listen, I know that there are many Christians, true believers in Christ, who struggle with assurance. There are people who are faithful, committed believers in Christ who are constantly asking the question, am I truly saved? Am I really a Christian? And that's even some of you. I've talked to some of you about that in your own lives. So as I'm saying this, let's be clear that my exhortation is not that we ought to look at every misstep and sin in our lives and question whether or not we're even saved. What I am saying is that we need to check our hearts to see if there is inward apathy or hostility to the Gospel that may be masked by some kind of outward conformity. And while I'm a bit concerned about making this point too strongly, because I know there are some of you who struggle with assurance when you need not do so, I am most certain that there are many more professing Christians that have never been truly saved and need to examine their hearts and repent of their sin and believe in the life and worth and death and resurrection and rule of Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. And as John made clear in this chapter, a good indication is your level of worldliness and your susceptibility to walking away from the church and never looking back. 
But for those who are true believers in Christ, for those who love and treasure Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord, John gives great promise. And this is my third and final point. God's elect will remain forever. Look again at verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Thus far in John's letter, he's presented two different tests. First was the test of obedience. And then we saw the test of love. Now John is presenting a third test the test of perseverance. This is implied in his statement that if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. They would have persevered with us. The great doctrine of the perseverance of the saints is one of the pillars of our faith. It is sweet. It is comforting. It is hope-filled. And yet, I must also caution that this doctrine is not for the purpose of lulling those who are indifferent to the gospel into a sense of false security. And that's one of the things I think John is addressing here. Hey, John, I thought you said that God would cause us to persevere to the very end. We've been taught to believe in eternal security. We were taught to believe in the South, that once saved, always saved. What's up with those guys that left the church? They're teaching something else. Why are they not remaining with us? I thought they were to persevere to the end. And John's simple response, they were never of us. In other words, They were never saved in the first place. Who cares if they walked down an aisle and signed a card and were baptized and have been here for five or ten years? They were never of us. And John is absolutely confident that those who belong to God will remain with God. And by extension of that, will remain, and this is very important in our day, will remain with the community of faith. So once again, I want to make a clarifying statement lest I'm misunderstood here. We are justified. We are made right before God and granted salvation because in God's grace, He has granted us the gift of faith and belief in Jesus. We are justified by our faith alone, by the grace of God alone. But that faith manifests itself in various ways. There are certain things that will be evident when we have true faith as believers. The Bible calls this fruit. Proof. We will bear fruit in our lives if we are true believers. 
And one of those fruits is to remain consistent and in a covenant relationship with the family of faith. In other words, the words, I am a Christian, but I don't go to church, don't make sense in a statement together. First of all, the church is the people. Therefore, you don't go to church. You go to worship with the church. Or you have fellowship with the church. But it is completely inconsistent with the Scriptures that one would claim to be a believer in Christ, but would not persevere in the covenant relationship in community with one another. Many people in our day get upset with another person or get mad because something in the congregation doesn't go exactly as they want it to go. And eventually they become the I used to's. These are the ones who you ask, are you a member of a local church anywhere? Oh, well, I used to be. And then on with their story of woe. Quite simply, these are the ones who have failed to persevere and have proven so by their lack of commitment to the bride of Christ. Instead of working through the hard things involved with living in community, they run from them because they don't trust in the power of the Gospel to make all things well to change our hearts and to change the situations and to heal open wounds. Brothers and sisters, we need one another. We are a body and when one part of the body is missing, the whole body is handicapped. True believers are actively obedient in their covenant relationship with the body of Christ and persevere in that relationship to the very end. Augustine wrote of these antichrists that were hiding out within the body. They are like bad humors in the body of Christ, the church. When they are vomited out, then the body is relieved. The body of Christ is now still under treatment and has not yet attained the perfect soundness which it shall have only at the resurrection. We are either among the members or else among the bad humors. It is of His own will that each is either an antichrist or in Christ. John is not writing this to scare us into obedience, but rather to strengthen the faith of the true believers which had most assuredly been shredded by the disobedience of those who departed. But he is clear that there were and there would continue to be antichrists in our midst. But he wraps it all in a beautiful truth that God's elect will remain forever. Revelation 3.5 the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. 
this is effectual. This has a defining effect on your continued response to God. If you continue on in this world as a faithful believer in Jesus Christ, your name will not be erased from the book of life. Stated another way, if your name is already written in the book of life, you will persevere to the end. These are not two contradictory statements, but rather both are highlighting different but equally true realities. Our responsibility and God's sovereignty. If you persevere, you will be saved. And if you are saved, you will persevere. In other words, strive hard after God with all of your strength. Run the race. Fight the fight. And in the end, God will keep you. And you will see all along you were only able to stand and fight because your name was written in the book of life before the foundations of the world. Simply stated, if you have salvation, you never lose it. But if you lose salvation, you never had it. Paul reminds us that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Therefore, God will show us in His sovereignty that there are those who will not remain so that it is plain that they were never of us. In His sovereign purpose, God has designed in these, the last days, that there will be those who will be, depart from us. They will teach heresy. They will bring others with them to make plain to us that all who deny that Jesus Christ is Lord and who turn their back on His bride, the church, were never of us. But you know, that too is hope-filled. While we mourn the loss of those who have gone the way of the world, those who have fallen prey to the lustful desires and temptations of their hearts, we recognize that God is purifying His bride. She is being sanctified so that when she is finally presented to the bridegroom on the final day of consummation, she will be undefiled and fit to dwell with the King forever. How sweet that is. How glorious that is. How awesome it is to be preserved by God that we can persevere to the end for God's glory and for our joy. And I'm going to close with what I think is perhaps the most beautiful description of this great truth that has ever been penned. And it's from our own Confession of Faith, the London Baptist Confession of Faith. Chapter 17, paragraph 1, on the perseverance of the saints. And listen to the beauty and the hope and the certainty of it. Don't get bogged down in the language. I'll go slow. Those whom God hath accepted in the Beloved, in Jesus, 
effectually called and sanctified by His Spirit, and given the precious faith of His elect unto, can neither totally nor finally fall from the state of grace. They can never lose their salvation. But shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved, seeing the gifts and callings of God are without repentance, whence He still begets and nourisheth in them faith, repentance, love, joy, hope, and all the graces of the Spirit unto immortality. And though many storms and floods arise and beat against them, yet they shall never be able to take them off that foundation and rock, which by faith they are fastened upon. Notwithstanding, through unbelief and the temptations of Satan, the sensible sight of the light and love of God may for a time be clouded and obscured from them. Yet, He is still the same. And they shall be sure to be kept by the power of God unto salvation, where they shall enjoy their purchased possession. They being engraven upon the palms of His hand, and their names having been written in the book of life from all eternity. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we have great and everlasting joy that we have peace with You through Jesus Christ, the Son. Father, help us to be a wise people. Help us to be a discerning people. Help us to be able, by the truth of Your Word, to identify the Antichrists in this world. Keep us, O Lord, from worldliness. Convict us in our hearts if we have yet to be transformed by the power of the Gospel. And in doing so, in transforming us, in making us into new creations, Keep us. Help us always to persevere. Help us to live on faithfully in our salvation, proclaiming the greatness and the beauty and the worth of Jesus Christ, our King. Help us, O Lord, to love You with all of our hearts, souls, mind, and strength. Thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the warnings of Your Word and for the hope, for the compassion of Your heart that shows through Your Word and for the joy that we obtain as we read and understand Your Word. In Jesus' name, Amen.